between that time that a lot of scholars call the travel narrative in Luke, and Luke, where Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. And we've been talking about Jesus' parables. We're actually in Luke 14 today. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Luke chapter 14. And uh, I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 11. It's on the screen above me as well if you want to follow along there. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we, we have some on the book table. You're welcome to just grab one and take one home. We'd love for you to have it. And if you're new, first of all, a special welcome to you today. I'd love to get to meet you. And um, go ahead and grab whatever book you would like from that book table. We would love to, to give it to you as a gift this morning. All right, Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 7. Now behold, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And then he who invites you both will come and say to you, give up your place to this person, and that you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Actually, we'll continue through verse 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the way that you reveal yourself to us in it. I'd ask that we would take these words that Jesus gives and treasure them in our hearts. Speak to us through your word this morning, Holy Spirit. Soften our hearts and open our ears that we might hear what you have to say to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We do not bring phones to the table. That's kind of a proclamation in our house. It's one of our family rules. No phones at the table. And sometimes we're saying that to our kids and sometimes they're saying that to us. No phones at the table, Dad, remember? It's just kind of, you know, one of the family rules that we have. Jesus is gathered around a table here. He's at a banquet. He's come into town, and as would have been the custom for kind of a traveling rabbi, he's been invited over to the religious leader's house. They want to host him. He's the honored guest. They probably also want to grill him a little bit. But in a banquet like this in the ancient world, the host would have sat at the head of the table and the honored guest would have sat to his right. That would have been his place. And the rest of the seats were kind of a free-for-all. It was a seat-yourself thing. But what happens, of course, in this description we get from Luke is that everybody starts fighting and clawing for the best seats, the ones closest to the host or closest to the honored guest because there's kind of a stratification of honor and of seating even in this banquet. And Jesus sees what's going on, and he tells a story really to illustrate this point, is that around God's table, there are some rules. Around God's table, there are some things that you just don't bring to the table. And we're going to talk about three of them today, 
three things that have no place at God's table. They are pride, vainglory, and objectification. Now, those last two are kind of odd, big words. We'll get to them and I'll define them. But let's start with this first, the one that we know all too well, pride. So what's pride and why does it have no place in Jesus's table? Well, we could define pride really as the desire above all else for preeminence, the desire to be number one, the desire to be at the top above anything else in our lives and the thing that drives us to get to the top of whatever place there is. Now, the ladies in the room will say, you know who really struggles with pride? And the kind of you're elbowing your husband at this point in time. And you know what? You're right. Men actually struggle with pride a lot. In fact, uh, Dave Barry, the, the humorist uh, writer, has written um, some very funny words about men and pride. I'm going to read you a little bit of what he's written here. It says, guys start acting macho at a very early age. Any parent will tell you that girl babies will generally display a wide-eyed curiosity about the world, whereas boy babies will generally try to destroy it. Girl toddlers will work hard to communicate with and imitate the behavior of other family members. Boy toddlers will imagine that they are large meat-eating dinosaurs and stomp around the house in the disposable diapers trying to bite the dog. Of course, I'm talking about very young guys here. As guys grow older and they produce more testosterone, they become less mature. This is especially true when they're in control of automobiles. One morning I was driving on, in Miami on Interstate 35, which should have a sign that says, warning, extremely high testosterone levels the next 15 miles. Because in the left lane, one behind the other, were two well-dressed middle-aged men, both driving luxury automobiles. They looked like responsible business executives, probably named Roger. With good jobs and nice families and male pattern baldness, the kind of guys whose most violent physical activity on an average day is stapling. They were driving normally, except that the guy in front, Roger One, was thoughtlessly going only about 65 miles per hour, which in Miami is the speed limit normally observed inside car washes. So Roger Two pulled up behind until the two cars were approximately one electron apart, and he honked his horn. Of course, Roger One was not about to stand for that. You let a guy honk at you, and you're basically admitting he has a bigger stapler. So Roger One stomped on his brakes, forcing Roger Two to swerve onto the shoulder where, showing amazing presence of mind in an emergency, he was able to make obscene gestures with both hands. At this point, both Rogers accelerated to approximately 147 miles per hour and began weaving violently from lane to lane through dense rush hour traffic, each risking numerous lives in an effort to get in front of the other, screaming and getting spit all over their walnut dashboards. I quickly lost sight of them, but I bet neither one of them backed down. Their co-workers probably wondered what happened to them. Where the heck is Roger? They probably said that later, later that morning, unaware that even as they spoke, the dueling Rogers, still only one inch apart, were approaching the Canadian border. Pride, the desire to be in front, the desire to be preeminent, the desire to always be on top. Of course, men aren't the only one that deal with pride, are we? It's why, ladies, you oftentimes feel that sick kind of feeling in your stomach when you walk into a room full of other women, especially if some of those women are a little bit younger than you, is because there's always this sense of competition. 
There's always this idea that, you know what, everything in my life is competing. And if I'm not a little bit ahead, then I am not valuable. If I am not on top, then I am not worthy. Pride so oftentimes drives us to so many things in our lives. It can be the thing that always makes us compete. It can be the thing that always drives us to really destructive perfectionism. It is the thing that very oftentimes, when taken to this extreme, will also leave us in utter despair. And what Jesus said is that there is no place for pride around his table. Let's look at the second thing that Jesus says there's no room for around his table. Vainglory. Now, raise your hand if you use the word vainglory in the last two weeks. Raise your hand if you use the word vainglory in the last 12 years, right? Probably nobody. It's not a word that we oftentimes use. It sounds like a really old-timey word, but it's a great word. Even just the word itself, listen to how it sounds, vainglory. You can hear what it's about just in those two words, the vanity of seeking glory. And vainglory and pride are kind of like non-identical twins, they're related really closely, but they have some differences. See, if, if pride is the desire to be preeminent above all things, vainglory is actually the desire to seem preeminent. You hear the difference? Pride is the desire to be on top. Vainglory is the desire for everybody else to see you as the one who's on top of all things. Rebecca DeYoung is, a, is an author who's written this really great book called Glittering Vices, where she kind of dissects the classic uh, seven deadly sins, but really talks about the concept of vice and virtue in our world. This is the way that she defines vainglory. In short, what makes vainglory distinct from pride is the love of the show. Prideful people want more, more than anything else to be number one. They seek greatness and superiority, even in ways that appropriately only belong to God. The vainglorious, on the other hand, do not aspire to something because it's excellent. Rather, they seek whatever will be, bring them the most public applause, whether deserving or not. Pride is a desire for status. Vainglory, a desire for recognition and acclaim. You see, as Jesus gathers around this banquet table that this Pharisee is throwing really in his honor, what he notices is people not only scrapping and clawing to kind of have that place on top, the place of honor, but of course also to be seen by everybody else there as the one who's got that place of honor. That desire for the people all around me to see my status. I watched this, uh, this, this little thing on YouTube the other day that was reflecting on um, the time when Michael Jordan retired from basketball. So Michael Jordan, probably the best basketball player that's ever lived, played for the Chicago Bulls. And when he retired, you know, just, they had just finished this incredible run of championship after championship after championship. And Jordan retires, and they're kind of wondering, what's next for the Bulls? Well, the Bulls had actually drafted this young man named Corey Benjamin, and he was supposed to be the guy that was going to really lead them into this new era. And he was a good basketball player, great athlete, good player, young guy, all of kind of the hopes, you know, really built on this guy. But Benjamin, like a lot of basketball players, uh, thought very highly of himself. And um, he wasn't all that bright about the way that he uh, expressed these things. 
particularly being that he started to tell everybody around him, you know that Jordan guy? <laughs> I could take him easily, right? I would crush him in a one-on-one game. That's what he started to tell this story to all of his teammates and anybody who would listen. If I were to play Michael Jordan, <laughs> there would be no chance for that guy. Probably not a good idea. In fact, Jordan got word of it, of course, and challenged him to a game. I'll give you the ending. I'll skip to the end. Jordan crushed him. But here's the interesting thing about that game, is that Jordan actually showed up one day at Bulls practice. Now, remember, he's retired. He's not on the team. He doesn't have to go to practice. He showed up at the Bulls practice simply to challenge Corey Benjamin to a one-on-one game. The only reason is because that's the place where the whole team was. Now, he could have called him and said, hey, meet me at the gym later tonight or come to my house, which he probably owns multiple gyms, right? He could have challenged him in private, but he didn't want to do that. He wanted to do it in public. He wanted to do it right there in front of everybody. And I'm watching this thing, so obviously somebody filmed the whole thing too. And after this uh, one-on-one game and after Jordan just you know, really abuses this kid and tells him to go sit down, guess what he does next? He goes and talks to reporters. There are reporters there interviewing Michael Jordan about a one-on-one game. Friends, that's vainglory. He doesn't just want to be on top. He wants everybody to know who's on top. Everybody around needs to know who the guy is, who's the best, and it's me. Boy, doesn't that drive us to so many things? I mean, why do we so oftentimes desire to accumulate status symbols? Why do we call them status symbols? It's because they are symbolic of our status, not symbolic to us, symbolic to everybody around us. We want people to know that we have achieved. Or we want people to know that we are the best in our field. Or we want people to know that we really, this is a good one, we want people to know how humble we are. Isn't that one great? When we start kind of telling little stories about how humble we are, the humble brag, like that one. And here's what's so insidious really about both pride and vainglory, is that they can kind of live in the background of our lives without us really knowing it. They're the things that we kind of go deaf to. They just kind of live there, and very oftentimes we don't see it in ourselves. C.S. Lewis said this about pride, is that it's the thing that we most despise in other people but rarely see in ourselves. <laughs> we hate it when we're around people who are prideful, but we almost never actually see it in ourselves. I love Whataburger, okay, just like probably most of you do. And there's, you know, a phenomenon about Whataburger, really any fast food restaurant, is that when you walk into the door, actually before you walk into the door, when you pull into the parking lot, the first thing you experience is the smell. And for like two seconds, it's the most fabulous smell in the world, right? I mean, the the smell of grease cooking, you know, is pretty incredible right off the bat. But pretty quickly, when you're in there, you're like, man, like my eyes, I can't even really see because like, my brain is trying to, is, is using all of its power to take in what to do with all of this overpowering smell. And you think, like, how in the world can anybody work here? How could you spend all day with this smell? It is just so much. How could you ever deal with it? But there's this phenomenon, isn't it, that after about 10 minutes, the smell just goes away completely. It's like 
you're in the middle of the field, like in a Febreze commercial, you know, and everything just feels great, and there's no more grease. It's like they stopped cooking all the fries, which, of course, they didn't. It's still there. You just went nose blind. The smell is no longer a big deal to you because you got used to it. And you live most of the rest of the day having gotten used to that smell until you come home and hug your wife and she says, ah, you smell like Whataburger. Or maybe you take that shirt off, you know, at the end of the day and leave it, you know, on the floor in the closet and the next day, you know, pick up the shirt and for whatever reason, smell it and ah, there's that smell again, right? It fades into the background of our lives. We kind of go nose blind to it until we're really hit with it at some point. And that's what Jesus is doing for us here. He is kind of hitting us like the smell of an old shirt that's been in a fast food restaurant to say, listen, this is what you smell like. It's in your life. It's the spark that has been inflaming so many things around you. It's been going forever and ever and ever. This is you. It's good for us to take a look at ourselves in that way, isn't it? To simply ask, what is it that I'm doing that is sparked by pride or vainglory? What are the things that I do in my life that are always trying to get ahead of somebody else? What are the things in my life that I'm always presenting to the world around me so that they might think more of me? What are the, the little hints that I'm giving people to build up kind of my resume? Let's move to the third one. Objectification. Nice, solid word there, objectification. Yeah, that's a word that we do use every now and then, but we only use it typically in one particular context. We talk about women being objectified, and we usually use that in a sexual sense. Well, of course, that is true, but Jesus is talking about objectification in a much broader way here. Let's go back to the story and think about what he says. He's there at this banquet, and he sees people fighting for place of honor, fighting uh, you know, for this vainglory and fighting for pride. But what does he tell them? He says, listen, when, when you throw a banquet, here's how to do it. Instead of inviting your neighbors and your friends and your family and your brothers, invite the poor. Invite the, the needy. Invite the blind and the lame and the crippled. You know what all those folks have in common? Is that in that time, they actually had no ability to invite you back. See, what Jesus is saying is so oftentimes who you're inviting over is simply for the purpose of getting invited back over. Now, of course, it's okay to invite your neighbors over for dinner. It's okay to invite your family over for dinner. Jesus is talking about the motivation. What motivates us to do what we do? Are we doing it because we are pouring out of ourselves love and service for others, or are we doing it so that we might actually get something back from others? Because if we are doing what we do in order to get something back from others, we are using people like objects. We are using people as tools to get what we want out of life. See, we are to use things and love people. But in our culture, oftentimes we have that completely reversed, don't we? Is that we love things and we use people to get those things. I don't know if you've seen the movie Parasite. Joy and I watched it recently. It's 
uh, this year's Academy Award winner for Best Picture. Really a fabulous movie. It's a movie that, among other things, is about class struggle. And it centers really around these two families, one rich, one poor. But throughout the movie, what's really pretty amazing is to see how each of these families is using the other to get what they want. Each of these families is simply feeding on the other family so that they might get the things out of life that they desire. They are each parasites to one another. And what does a parasite do? It takes and takes and takes and takes. And what Jesus says here is that if our life, if the people around us are actually being used as objects for us to get what we want out of life, then we are dehumanizing them. We are treating them no longer like men and women made in the image of God, but we are treating them like things to be used in order for us to get the stuff out of life that we want. Now, we can certainly do this with our hospitality. Sociologists will actually say um, that Jesus is right here based on studies. They'll say, you know, when you first meet somebody and you invite them over for dinner, like what is actually kind of expected is that you might reciprocate right? When they invite you, you reciprocate. And everybody's cool with that when your relationship is really young. But you know, as you grow in friendship, when you start to only reciprocate, it is actually hurtful. Is that people start to think, you know what? Maybe that person doesn't actually love me. Maybe they just think they have to do this. In fact, maybe they're using me to kind of get something out of me. But it works with a lot more than just the way that we open our homes. It works really with the way that we, we use our service in any way. I mean, how oftentimes are we doing things that are kind in order to gain something from someone else? How oftentimes is our kindness actually a means to get something out of someone? Husbands, if you're like me, you know this feeling, right? I mean, I bought you flowers. I took you to dinner. And, right, so there's something that needs to happen because I've kind of put in my work. I've made the deposits. I'm ready to reap the reward. Everybody does that in some way. Let me just give you a little clue. If the feeling is disappointment, that's one thing. But if the feeling is frustration because you didn't get what you wanted, then there's a decent chance that what you've been doing the whole time is actually objectifying the other person. Does that make sense? See, if you didn't give me what I wanted because I thought I really, I thought I earned it, then it's not kindness, it's work. If what we are doing is in order to gain something, then we are objectifying the people around us. And Jesus says, there's no room at that, there's no room for that at my table. We, in fact, are called to pour ourselves out for others, not so that we might gain, but so that they might gain. We're called not to be parasites, but actually to be givers, to pour ourselves out for others so that they might flourish, not so that we might. All right, so what's the answer? What's the answer to all of this? What's the remedy for, uh, for vainglorious, for the vainglorious person? What's the remedy for the prideful person? What's the remedy for objectification? Well, I've been reading the book, um, The Count of Monte Cristo, lately, kind of about halfway through this classic literature. It's really fabulous. I'm not going to tell you an illustration from that. I just want you to know that I'm reading it, okay? <laughs> because what I am going to tell you is this illustration from the movie Grease. 
which is not quite the same level of classic literature as the Count of Monte Cristo. But some really wonderful examples in Greece. And if you haven't seen Greece, which, come on, you've seen Greece. <laughs> Who am I kidding? If you, um, if, you, if you remember, you know, the two main characters are, are Danny and Sandy. They're high school characters. And Danny is kind of your classic bad boy. He's a greaser. He takes place in the 50s. Um, he's uber cool. And, you know, he hates jocks and nerds and going steady with anybody, right? Because, you know, Danny can't be tied down. He's just too cool. He races his car. You know, that guy. And, uh, and Sandy is just the opposite. She is, she, is, she is pure and innocent. She is the good girl. She's kind of the goody-goody two-shoes, you know, example here. But they meet, the whole pretext for the movie is that they meet one summer while their families are on vacation and have this wonderful kind of summer fling and fall in love with each other and pledge their undying love to one another forever, thinking that they're going to each go back to their own place. She's from Australia. He's from the U.S. And they're never going to really see each other again. But of course, because it's a movie, they both end up in the same high school, not knowing it. And there's this great scene at the very beginning kind of of the movie where uh, it's a football game. It's before the football game. Everybody's kind of hanging out in the parking lot. And Danny is there with his dudes and he's hanging out, you know, by a car and they're smoking or doing something super cool. And, uh, and, And Sandy comes up and they have this chance meeting where they both realize that they're in the same place. And just for like a short time, Danny kind of forgets who he is. And he freaks out. He's like, Sandy, I'm so excited to see you. And, and he just kind of loses himself in this woman that he really loves until one of his friends kind of nudges him, you know, like, hey, did you forget who you are? And then it's like the switch has been flipped and he realizes, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm cool. And he kind of leans back, does like this really cool thing kind of on the car. And, uh, and he starts talking to her like with totally different kind of language. He really just kind of dismisses her. You can see pride, vainglory, objectivity, all of it is all on display right now. That first scene is like, here is what it looks like for all of these things to be present. And of course, the way that it ruins everything, she just runs away and their relationship is just broken. But there's this beautiful scene at the end where exactly the opposite thing happens. They've, they've graduated and um, upon graduation, there's always like a fair which is, which is always fun. Um, so they're like at the graduation fair and, um, and he's, he's dressed in this Letterman sweater because it's in the 50s, you know, there's Letterman sweaters. And one of his friends comes up and says, Danny Zuko turned jock, who would have ever thought it? But his response is great. He says, you know, I love you guys, but Sandy means the world to me and I would do anything to get her back. See, the thing that actually pushes out our pride and our vainglory and the thing that pushes out, you know, objectification from our lives is love. When you have been loved and when your heart is set in love on another, everything else just kind of fades away. It's what the theologian Jonathan Edwards called the the power of a new affection, the expulsive power of a new affection. I have this new affection in my heart and it pushes everything else out. I have been loved and I no longer need to be on top. I have been loved and I no longer need for everybody to see me as preeminent. I have been loved and I no longer need to gain from other people things. I can actually give now because I've been loved. You know, we have a place in this parable that Jesus tells. 
It's at his table. We're the poor and the needy and the blind and the lame. And we've been invited to the table of the king. He has spread his bounty out before us. And he has said, I love you. Not because you can give me anything back. Not because you can make me look any better. Not because it's the right thing to do. I love you in spite of all those things. I love you not because you've deserved it. I love you because I love you. We have been brought to the table of the king, friends. We have been given everything in spite of deserving nothing. He has lavished his love and his grace on us. And now we get to pour that out for one another. The love of Jesus disposes us of pride, of vainglory, of objectification of each other. And it shows us that we can actually come now and lay our lives before one another. So let me just leave you with these two questions and then we'll ponder those. Where do you see pride, vainglory, objectification cropping up in your life? And then here, the remedy. How has the love of Jesus overwhelmed those things and shown you how you might pour yourself out for others? I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll spend a few moments pondering that question. Let's pray. Lord, we are um, abundantly thankful to be welcomed to your table. We're about to celebrate that together. That sinners have been brought not to gather up the crumbs, not to beg, not to keep knocking on the door, not to fulfill a list of requirements in order that we might be admitted, Lord, but we have been brought to your table and we've been given the place of honor because we are united to you. Jesus, you, you tell us through the words of the Apostle Paul that you did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you humbled yourself. You took on the form of a servant. You laid yourself down even, humbling yourself even to death on a cross. Lord, that's not just our example. It is our motivation. It is the reason we live. is because you have come, and not in pride, and not in vain glory, and not in objectification. You have come in love and poured yourself out for us. Lord, show us how we might do that for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.